Welcome, everyone, to episode 158 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and you're in for a bit of a surprise today, because on this week's episode, we're not, in fact, talking about the Paul Schrader, Oscar Isaac crime drama, The Card Counter, and instead, we're discussing the Amazon Studios, Sydney Sweeney, Justice Smith-led erotic thriller, The Voyeurs. Before we get to that, though, with me today, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how, oh, how? Are you making it through this week before you join me in New York City? Yeah, uh, slowly but surely. Uh, the the clock is passing a little bit slower, I guess, because I have something that I've been looking forward to for a while now this weekend. Like you said, uh, coming to New York, we have a lot of fun things planned, including going to see David Byrne's American Utopia on Broadway, going to see the Indians play. So it should be a really fun uh, time. But I have yeah. I happen to have some big uh, hearings court hearings the next couple of days so those are kind of hanging over my head before i can you know really look ahead to the weekend but um i also just want to say you you started off by saying that everyone's in for a surprise uh i think the surprise to me would be if our listeners actually listen through to the very end of every episode and know that we had even intended to do the card counter because that's the only way you would know that that's what we uh that is something that i was thinking about the other day i'm like Unique times, any listener, even repeat times, has made it to uh, the end of the podcast to know what we're talking about next week. And the even fewer times I'm sure it's happened where certain listeners have listened to the end end of the podcast where sometimes there's some surprise extra content. True, Um, yeah. So, you know, maybe some incentive to check out to see if there's some extra content at the end of this podcast. We got 15 minutes. We could st- we could stick at the end there, not not spoiling anything. But yeah, we did uh, we did record 15 minutes of just us chatting. Not not particularly thrilling conversation, but well, I'd say uh, about two thirds of that. 10 minutes was total fluff. Um, yeah. But I think that there's some content that could be mined there for a little ghost track at the end. You'll have to listen to the end to find out. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. Well. I guess we can uh, shepherd our listeners on their way to the ghost track at the end of this episode by going ahead and kicking things off and talking about our topic of conversation today, which is one of a different flavor, I'd say, than we typically find ourselves reviewing, and that is the aforementioned erotic thriller, The Voyeurs. Directed by Michael Mohan, Moen, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, The Voyeurs first starts with a young couple, Pippa and Thomas, played by Euphoria's and the White Lotus's Sydney Sweeney and Detective Pikachu's Justice Smith, respectively. The couple are moving in together into their new Montreal apartment, And after all the paperwork is signed and they admire their new apartment, they both notice that their neighbor's apartment across the street is in plain view. The man, Ben Hardy, who lives in the apartment, seems to have a professional photography studio set up in one half and is taking photographs of a woman played by Natasha Lou Bordizzo, presumably his partner. Things get steamy pretty quickly, and before they know it, Pippa and Thomas have become the titular voyeurs, watching their seemingly unwitting neighbors have sex. Pippa forces Thomas to stop, but her friend from work, Ari, played by Catherine King So, convinces her that it isn't wrong since their neighbors must know they're in plain view of the apartments across the street. 
The ensuing days and weeks sees, see roles reversed as Pippa becomes more obsessed with Brent and Margot, as they call, as the couple Pippa and Thomas call their neighbors, going so far as to buy binoculars and jerry-rig a listening device after sneaking into their neighbor's Halloween soiree. I'll stop there to cut off any further spoilers, but Scott, did the voyeurs spark an unexpected level of intrigue in you during your watch, or did you find this to be a misguided and directionless mishmash of the classic films that inspired it? Yeah, I mean, you said it there at the start that um, this is a bit of a different type of movie than we uh, would normally review. That's kind of why I suggested it um, when I saw that this was coming out. I saw a couple of good reviews of it, and I thought, hey, this might be fun. The fact of the matter is, you know, this is a different movie for us, but it's going to be a different movie for a lot of people because this genre, erotic thrillers, they aren't really being made anymore. Um, and it's kind of been the, the subject of some conversation online recently or at least on film twitter um, sure. about how there isn't really sex in movies anymore about how movies are like you know weirdly sexless nowadays when we're supposedly more progressive about um th those sorts of things um as opposed to of course again the era when these types of movies were big which is the 90s right you had basic instinct you had wild things you had cruel intentions single white female like the list goes on the yeah. these types of movies were huge in the 90s um i've seen a few of them wild things which i mentioned is one that i have a personal soft spot for that movie's incredibly fun if you've never seen it um but also you know this movie in addition to owing a lot to those 90s erotic thrillers um you know, obviously has some rear window similarities, as does any movie with this sort of plot. I mean, this is the second movie kind of this year that we've seen with with a similar plot, uh, The Woman in the Window, the Joe Wright film being the other one. Um, but, you know, there's other examples, Disturbia, um, that Shia LaBeouf movie was also, you know, a rear window spin. But I actually think that the movie that this resembles the most is Brian De Palma's Body Double, um, because Body Double was... was um, was De Palma, I mean, obviously De Palma in his early years was known for doing sort of Hitchcock pastiches. Um, Dressed to Kill being like his psycho riff. Blowout having some sort of uh, rear window similarities as well. And then, um, you know, Body Double also very similar to Rear Window. But Body Double was way more sexually explicit, obviously, than Rear Window was allowed to be in the 50s. Um, and so that's why I think that, um, and, and also, Body Double has this whole thing about sort of performance and uh, it is set more in the art world. Like the main character is an actor, photography is an aspect. And, and so I think this movie owes a lot to Body Double as well as those 90s um, erotic thrillers. I say all that to say, um, I have a really fun time with Body Double. I have a really fun time with some of those movies like Wild Things that I mentioned. And I had a really fun time with this movie. Um, it does feel like a throwback in um, some ways that I, I really enjoyed. Uh, it's just kind of a, I mean, you know, again, the conversation has been um, leading up to this about how they're, you know, the movies are kind of sexless. People aren't going to have that issue with this movie. Uh, this movie definitely pushes the envelope. Um, it definitely lives up to the billing as an erotic thriller. Um, and, you know, I think it, it sat, it, uh, it, um, provides both uh, steaminess and the thrills, right? Um, I think this movie is just a lot of fun. Does it make a lot of sense? No, but uh, you know, you don't come to these types of movies to 
you know, for, for something that, you know, logically, um, you know, completely holds together. Like that's just, if you, if you're coming to this movie for that, um, you know, you might want to reevaluate. Um, at the same time, I do think the movie tries to make, you know, tries to go a little bit deeper than the surface, tries to have some, um, you know, thematic stuff going on here that isn't explored with as much nuance as, you know, it could be, of course. But again, that's not what this movie is about. I appreciated that, um, you know, it took some swings. Um, and when I say take some swings, I mean, the twists in the third act of this movie just had me like cackling um, with with delight, cackling with delight, of course, um, not in a bad way. Um, I just I loved how much they just kept throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what what would stick. Um, I think there. Yeah. Again, I think there's something to be said for a movie that just kind of goes balls to the wall. No uh, pun intended, quite literally, maybe uh, in, in some parts. But um and just kind of, um, you know, throw some wild twists at you in the last third. Um, I think the performances are good. Um, Sydney Sweeney, I think she's great for, you know, a movie like this. I think she can really lead a movie like this. Um, and it's good to see her moving beyond her TV roles. Um, this where, is barely you know, beyond a TV role. Yeah, that's that's probably true. I mean, this is a straight to streaming movie. But that was kind of the other point I wanted to make is like, this feels like, what a straight to streaming movie should be right like um if i watched this in a theater would i've had the same time good time with it i don't know but there's something about watching this kind of just like wild movie again um there's you know some explicit stuff going on like watching this in the comfort of your own home it just feels like the setting for this type of movie you know um so it, it almost in the same way right that when 50 shades of gray came out it's like the best-selling book ever on Kindle because people were like too embarrassed to like go out and, you know, buy the physical book or whatever um, and be reading it in public or whatever. But, you know, they, they felt more comfortable like the moms or whatever who were reading 50 shades of gray um, buying it on Kindle where no one could really see what they were reading. It's kind of the same thing with this movie, right? Like, cause it is like, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's, you know, sleazy, it's dumb, whatever, but um it's a great time. Uh, and I definitely recommend it. Just, just know what you're getting into. That's all I'll say. If you know what you're getting into, um, I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. And I do think that seeing some of the movies like basic instinct and wild things that, and body double, of course, that influenced this movie, um, will help you appreciate it because I think the director does a really good job of, um, like he really did his homework on this genre. That's what I'll say. I think, I think, um, you know, this isn't just sort of, um, I called it sleazy, but this isn't just like, Oh, we're, this is just something to throw on the back shelf at the video store or whatever. Um, it like there's actual craft and it, it's clear that he tried to, um, emulate some of these films that, um, were so big in their given era. So, um, yeah, uh, it, it is what it is. But for me, what it is, is uh, uh, one of the more fun times I've had watching a movie this year. I'll be honest, just on a, on a fun level. Um, I This movie was not even close to being boring for any of its running time. Uh, it's going to be one of those episodes where we disagree, Scott. <laughs> Love to see sad. it on the podcast. No, not sad. I don't think it's sad. But Scott, I will say that we had fundamentally different experiences with this movie because you watched it in the comfort of your own home. I have no idea whether you watched it in one sitting or not. I watched it in one sitting on an airplane, uh, which was quite the different experience. Ooh. 
Not a good airplane movie. Uh, I mean, maybe the people around it around me enjoyed it too. I have no idea. I won't ask questions to them, but I'm sure they enjoyed parts of it. I mean, maybe I don't know. And I I wasn't about to to ask them if they enjoyed part of it. But what I will say is um, this movie, you know, it it. it it starts off and I think sets up some interesting things. There's plenty of threads that I think could have been fun for me and they could have explored in the second half. And this thing just drives off a cliff in the second half of the film, albeit a very different cliff than the one the woman in the window drove off of. I do think that this movie is marginally better than that, maybe because it had some minor element of thrills to it. Uh, which the woman in the window, I think, mostly fa- failed. Uh, it's marginally had. better, and that margin is very large. <laughs> yeah, well, agree to disagree on that one. But look, you said the performances are good. I don't think the performances are very good. I think Sidney Sweeney is fine. Whatever the hell Justice Smith is doing is is bad. His He's, voice is interesting. But... <laughs> I mean, he doesn't even hold... Like He gives up on that halfway through the movie, which yeah. I, I take or leave, I don't know, but just not a good performance from him. Uh, this is the trajectory he's on post detective pikachu which i think you know make of it what you will of what you think of detective pikachu and his particular performance not a good one in my book i think again the supporting cast here of like ben hardy and natasha loop bordizzo i think maybe there's something interesting going on there but not only do i think the performances are a bit lackluster in the lead roles i mean like i like why i don't know why these actors are doing this like why is justice smith doing this role like why is sydney sweeney who is in these like super acclaimed television shows why is she why is this her lateral into film i i guess i'm having a hard time wrapping my head around it i don't i don't even think the twists are that interesting to be honest like i think one of them is interesting and then the others are just like they like this director and i don't know if he also yeah he wrote it as well like i don't think he has any clue what he's doing like i just think that he's like swerving to be swerving um in a film that feels like he really lost control of it um about halfway through unfortunately and you say that this is the kind of movie that i expect to come straight to streaming and i agree i would not expect that this movie ever get made um and no 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 movie studio proper who's looking for a theatrical release would fund this film. I don't think, I just don't think that it would happen. Part of that might be just the steaminess of it, right? Like it, like sex is a very taboo subject in movies. That's the straight truth. I don't even remember the last time I saw sex scenes, even like remotely close to this in a movie that I watched Mm -hmm. in a theater. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I mean, like I haven't seen the 50 shades movies, so it's hard for me to make that comparison. Like, I don't know if, if those were as explicit as this was, but maybe, maybe it is 20, 19 when 50 shades freed i don't know what the third one is i don't remember um something like that 50 shades the third i think that's the title yeah yeah one of them is 50 shades darker or something i don't know um anyway yeah just a, this was just a big disappointment for me i mean look maybe i would have had a better time of it if i wasn't surrounded by 50 other people on an airplane um i do think it's important to caveat that but i, I just think that there's like a lot more interesting directions this movie could have gone even in the thrills department, right? Even if it isn't trying to explore these themes more meaningfully, which I'm not going to sit here and tell this movie, it needs to like be deep and meaningful. It doesn't need to be deep and meaningful. I just, yeah, I just, I feel like I, I lost track of this thing 
from about the halfway point went I mean honestly when the when the twists I guess start if you will um yeah un- unfortunate but it again it, I think it, it laid out some interesting things early on and it certainly takes some swings unfortunately I think the, those swings were big whiffs yeah I mean some people are gonna go on uh, go along for the ride and some people aren't I think that's probably what it boils down to yeah, and I, and I think to segue us to the next topic, though, which is talking about these leads a little bit more, you know, I think that I would have felt more on board for the ride if I felt there was much, if any, coherency to the characters in this movie. It's, like, fine to do some crazy shit with your, like, twists and turns, but I just think that this, I mean, I guess we said, like, this sort of co-led movie, but really Sydney Sweeney's Pippa is, like, the lead in this movie. Yeah. And the character just makes no, absolutely no sense whatsoever. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, even from, like, the end of the first act onwards, she's making decisions that make absolutely no sense. Um, and they don't really explain why she's making them. They don't need to explain why they why it makes them think the day they didn't do it. But to me, I lost all investment uh, in the character because of that. And, and as the second act sort of progresses, she's the only character, really, that there's left at some point. Um sort of that's the focal point of the movie to be attached to and i just wasn't and so it was hard to pull me through on these twists and turns when i didn't really understand or care what was happening to the main character but scott that's my sort of high level thought less on the i guess on that more on the character but what do you think of both the performance and the character here that is pippa played by sydney sweeney yeah i mean i enjoyed her performance i did i i think it's different a little bit from what we've seen her doing on TV on Euphoria and White Lotus, she kind of plays a similar character, you know, the sort of like very confident, like bratty teenage girl in a way. Um, She's not the bratty in Euphoria, though, is she? Maybe I'm remembering her character wrong. I mean, it feels like it's been five years since we watched season (laughs) one of Euphoria. Isn't she the person who's like they I think they cast her as like like the misunderstood, like dumb blonde or whatever. They like people perceive her as this type of person, but she's really this. Yeah, that's sort of sens- me, but... sensitive, complex character. I don't know. Yeah, maybe so. Anyway, I, I just, I don't know. I found her to be like more of a precocious character, I guess, in this movie than, uh, it's probably just because I'm watching The White Lotus right now. And so I mean, yeah, look, I mean, she's a character that's in The White Lotus. stuck in my head. Yeah, um, that's fair. But I think she was good in the movie. Um, I think, uh, I, you know, you say her character makes no sense. There are definitely things that make no sense. There's a voicemail that she leaves at one point that I was just like, what are you doing? Um, but there are other things which I think, I, I, I think that, you know, she the character and the writing and everything deserves more credit. Um, I think there is some reasoning behind it. And I like that it's kind of a complicated, you know, character from a moral standpoint right like um because she is the one who keeps persisting and we wanting to keep you know watching these people she wants to keep watching these people um she you know goes so far as to start hanging out with <laughs> natasha Liu bordizo's character um you know getting kind of close to the subject and justice smith is the one who's like no that like this is too much we need to focus on us you know you're getting obsessed whatever um and yeah you know again i think it's complicated as to whether um we are fully on board with her character's actions um or or not um and you know 
her motivations. Um, what exactly are they down, you know, down the stretch? I think there are um, different routes you can go depending on, again, how you, what your perception of the character is. So um, I like that there was some, you know, complexity to it, some ambiguity to it. Um, it's not necessarily like Rear Window where I think you are kind of on Jimmy Stewart's side because, you know, he believes that a murder has gone on, right? Or, you know, or that at the very least somebody's being abused in the apartment across from him. Um, and so, you know, you feel like it's um, his duty to um, keep uh, participating, but you're to keep watching. But here it's like, yes, eventually that does develop, of course. But at first they're just kind of watching because they're like, you know, titillated by it. Um, and uh, more than so, that, they literally have sex while watching the other couple do, have yes. sex at one point. They do indeed. Um, and so I guess there's some questions about, is that crossing the line? Um, and yeah, but anyway, I, I think Sydney Sweeney gives a good performance. Like, I think she has a good movie star presence. Um, she has the looks to be able to pull off this type of role. I mean, it's gotta be said. Um, and yeah, I, uh, I don't know that I have much more to add except, um, sure. Maybe it's not the most auspicious move into movies that you would have expected for somebody who's been in such high quality TV programs, but like. You know, you ask what what she's getting out of this movie, and again, I think the because of the the discourse around movies being like, you know, sexless and not steamy or anything anymore. I think if you are somebody who is more progressive about these ideas, and Sydney Sweeney cer certainly seems that she is based on this movie, um, you could see this as an opportunity to like, hey, we're actually gonna, um, you know, we're gonna do something different here. We're gonna bring back an era of films. We're going to try to destigmatize showing sex on screen um, mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, gets, gets me wanting to be involved in the movie, even if it's not going to be like high art or some Oscar contender or anything. So I think there's something to be said for that. Yeah. I just wondered though, if this is the kind of movie that destigmatizes it or just makes you like almost stigmatizes it more, right? Like you're watching it, on your computer in your bedroom rather than out in the open, right? Like it's like how many people are going to turn this on and invite some friends over and watch this. Right. And like actually open up about it and feel like they want to commune with that in public or talk about that after I just like, that might be the right idea. Maybe that's the idea that she has. I have no idea, but I wonder if it's actually this, this movie is actually accomplishing that. Um, I mean, Netflix just a few months ago or whatever came out with the show that, oh, I'm forgetting the name of it, right? Is it Sex Life? I think is what it's called or whatever. And it has um, some, I mean, it was like the steamiest show or whatever that Netflix had like ever done. Um, that was like, that was like the buzz around it. And I just like wonder if that really destigmatizes it. I mean, maybe if there's a bunch more of these types of movies and shows, it does destigmatize it. I just wonder if it's just like streaming services pushing into a genre that's incredibly popular. Because porn is an incredibly popular genre of you know video consumption in the U.S. <laughs> and maybe putting it on Amazon Studios or Netflix makes it more mainstream and makes it less stigmatized. But I just wonder if it's just doing something different. Like maybe that's the goal of these film, like this filmmaker and these actors and actresses. But what is Am like what is Amazon Studios doing, and why are they doing it? I wonder. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Just something that crossed my mind as as you were talking there. But I guess back to Sydney Sweeney. 
Yeah, look, I don't think it's I don't think her performance is is necessarily bad. I don't think that it does anything for me in terms of the character. I do think it's a little bit flat. I think that there could have been a lot more put into this character to make it, I guess, feel more emotional and lived in for me. It just felt like a lot of the a lot of the character and a lot of the performance is just trying to like tell you how she feels rather than actual acting how she feels. Um, part of that's on her part of that's not on her. I think part of that is, is the script. I guess I'm one of those people not giving the script enough credit, um, for what you're seeing out of it. But yeah, I just, it, it just, it just came up short in a lot of departments for me. I mean, is she capable of doing a, a steamy erotic thriller? Like, sure. I mean, like, I don't know how many people who, who could disagree with that. I think that's absolutely true again. Yeah. Just not sure that beyond that, she adds too much to it. Um, which I think, well, yeah, not even, I think, I think that that is a little disappointing uh, for me. Justice Smith, on the other hand, I've already said most of what I have to say. I think he's a big disappointment here. I think this character is, is like, I don't know. It's just a nothing burger for me in this film. It almost seems like wallpaper, but Scott, what do you, what did you think about Justice Smith? Yeah, I mean, look, he's doing some weird. He's he's making some choices here with this performance. I'll say that. With I'm not even sure it, what the choices the voice. were, like what the intention was, like what is he? Well, trying that's why. To do? That's why I just said choices in general. Just <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know, vague level. Um, but I will say, I mean, I personally enjoy. It's not the greatest performance ever, but like I personally enjoyed seeing him in a film that I enjoyed and a film that is interesting and takes some risks. I think that is. Um, in opposition to the type of roles that we have seen him taking recently in his career with, you know, the Jurassic world films, you mentioned detective Pikachu. I think that movie was just kind of blah. Um, and so, you know, he is, I, I feel like with this, he's at least showing that, Hey, he's not just in this for cash grabs and whatever he has, you know, interests. Um, I don't know. Maybe they got paid a lot of money. To do this on, movie. Yeah, maybe he did. Maybe he did. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Again, I don't know that I have too much to say about his performance because it's it's just kind of it's a little melodramatic, but the movie's melodramatic. I mean, given that. Um, but I is that, do, is that what this genre is called? Melodramatic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, it's it's good to see him in a different kind of role, trying something interesting, even if the choices don't necessarily pay off. Yeah. Yeah. They don't pay off big time for me. I think that he would have been better served doing something else that offered him something more to do. Um, I guess even at the cost of being less interesting. Um, that's just my take though. That's fine. Anyone else in the supporting cast you want to talk about? Um, ben Hardy. Yeah. I mean, Natasha ben, yeah, ben, ben, Ben Hardy and Natasha Lubardizzo, the latter being, you know, someone vaguely familiar with from the society, uh, yeah. you know, that show from, um, a couple of years ago, that was I liked her very much. Too soon. Society. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you know, she's fine in the movie. I think, you know, her performance has to change a little bit over the course of the movie in a way that I, um, I liked. Sa same with Ben Hardy. Like you think you know what this character is up to. You think you know. You know. You think you've seen this character before, and then the twists mm -hmm. start coming. And um, I feel like he. You know, I feel like both of them do a good job of hiding what the real truth of the all of this is with their performances. Um, 
in a way that doesn't, yeah, again, that isn't overly deliberate or make a big deal about itself or anything like that. So I thought they, they did what they were asked to do. Yeah. I mean, in so many ways, right, this film is trying to <clears throat> light spoilers, I guess, but like just cast everyone against type, right? Or not necessarily cast against type, but like play these characters off ultimately as against the type, uh, against stereotypes, right? Like they, they feed you the first act that feels very stereotypical of the, who these people would be if you just looked at them on paper and then the rest of the movie reverses that, right? Like you see that with the lead two characters with Thomas being the one more interested in, you know, voyeurism at the start of the movie. And then that, that sort of flips pretty quickly and becomes Pippa again, going leaning more into spoilers here, but like Ben Hardy is, is portrayed early on as this sort of, you know, sex, like sex fueled, um, you know, polygamy. Yeah, maniac, American psycho. I mean, he's not killing people, right? But like American psycho est, sort sort of sex fueled maniac, you know, photographer taking advantage of women, etc. And you know, this character of Julia called, I forget what they called. What are they? Margot. Margot. The nickname yeah. they gave her in the first half of the movie. You know, this character is the one who is cast as this sort of almost, you know, subservient in to the extent of there is a massive financial and you know social power dynamic between the two of them and she is reliant on him and has to be a part of this abusive relationship in order to you know exist basically because of her background and situation that she's in and then again the rest of the movie flips that um by by the end and i think that that is an interesting idea and i do think that because of that these sort of supporting performances are more interesting than their lead counterparts. And I think that Natasha Liu Bordizzo is the more interesting of the two as well. Cause I think, you know, you do get these sort of real, real swings in, in the performance, even more so than what you get with, with Ben Hardy. Again, I just, I just don't think that they're executing that sort of role reversal very well in the film, or I should say they're not giving it enough, right? Like in one case, I think they're not, they're not giving you enough at the beginning, in my opinion, when it comes to, Pippa and Thomas. And I think on the other hand, you're not getting enough at the end when it comes to Julia and uh, Brent was his nickname and Seb is his real name. Yeah. that That's sort of how it shakes out for me. I do think this is the better performance in terms of uh, in the movie from Natasha Leo Bordizzo. I think it's the, the two of them are better than the lead counterparts. But I, again, I do think that the characters sort of don't give them enough room to really make the most of the role there's a little bit more to play with here with these two, but still not enough for me, I guess. Fair enough. Uh, again, I, I guess I'm not looking for super, you know, deep character arcs or anything. Well, I'm not looking movie. for deep characters yeah. either. I just, I'm not, the, the film just on one hand didn't get me invested enough when it comes to leads. And on the other hand, it didn't feel like that paid off enough um, with the support, but whatever. It's okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's yeah. definitely okay. Yeah, uh, you know, we haven't really. I mean, we've we've you know tiptoed around the the twists, and I've alluded to them certainly with talking about the characters. But let's just go ahead and and talk about them, right? Like, there's a whole uh, I don't know uh, hurdling contest of of twists here in the third act of the film. The first being that this character of Julia is killed. Uh, Specifically, that she commits suicide after the sort of intervention 
that Pippa has in her life to try to tell her that her husband is cheating on her, et cetera. Yeah, that goes on to then using the laser printer. I liked that. I thought that was kind of a clever little. I did think that was funny. Yeah. Weird, really, really weird, but funny. Uh, creative. I'll, I'll, it was definitely creative. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so so that happens, and then for whatever reason, Thomas and and Pippa were going to be fine, but because this woman committed suicide, they weren't. They broke up. Sydney Sweeney, I guess, with her obsession with this couple, takes it a step further and then goes and and well it makes sense you know it's such a great moment right they've made up and they're hugging and over while they're hugging like over his shoulder uh she she's the dead body know, looking out and yeah and sees yeah. sees what's going on it's I, I love that i think that moment starts really good and then by the end of it with him like storming out and just i was like what the fuck's happened in this scene um and not necessarily in a good way but it look it's set up it was set up well then yeah so they break up the next twist comes and where pippa is having sex with seb um after she sort of like you know runs into him of course her trying to stage it right um at at the local you know the bar at the in the basement of his building or next to his building or whatever you know he ends up photographing her and they end up having sex at the same time of course that thomas returns and is going to ask for forgiveness with flowers and you know, he enters the apartment, looks around, looks across, sees them having sex, decides to, you know, put his drink in the bird feeder. And next thing we know, he's dead. And then, of course, uh, the final twist, the penultimate twist. There's another twist after that, I guess. Yeah, no, there's a couple more. Yeah, yeah the final twist being that actually Julia is not dead. She is, in fact, alive. This is unveiled at the exhibition that Seb has for his new... Um, you know, I guess his yeah, it's his new exhibition, right? For the photograph, photos, for the uh, photos yeah. he's been taking, and it's revealed that the subject of this exhibition is in fact Pippa and her now late uh, boyfriend Thomas, in which they were actually the ones watching them the whole time. Uh, she, of course, storms out confused and I don't know if enraged is the right way to put it, but certainly frazzled to the nth degree. Wreck goes to his apartment, wrecks his apartment, finds the sort of hidden studio above. Um, where all their camera equipment is set up and presumably where uh, this, you know, where Julia has been hiding for the past several you know, days, whatever it has been, a week or so. And then more twists to come that, in fact, Thomas did not commit suicide after discovering that his girlfriend was sleeping with their neighbor. He actually was killed in order to sort of complete this narrative of exhibition that they were creating. He was killed with poison by Julia and Seb uh, indirectly in that case, because Julia is the one who broke in and poisoned his drink. And Sydney Sweeney gets the last laugh and blinds them with her optometry equipment at work, which. Okay. Great. Great last image. It's a funny last image. I will certainly say that I uh, have absolutely no idea what happens post eyes being blinded like i don't like what but uh scott it seems like you were vibing with the with the twist at the end of this why don't you oh, why don't you give the positive spin on this absolutely i mean a couple of things i like like the checkoff's guns that get set up i mean you know you have the 
the bird feeder again, which is given to her by her boss. You have the cucumber water is like established early on. You know, this is a thing that Justice Smith has been drinking. You yeah. have even just the fact that she works at a, you know, optometrist's office. And that mm -hmm. ends up coming to play in, in multiple ways uh, because the glasses, right? First, that's how they meet. The glasses break. Um, and Julia comes in to get new glasses and, you know, they meet. Well, that's all stage, um, but yeah. Of course, yeah. Um, but then, you know, it comes in again, comes into play again at the end um, when she blinds them. So I liked, you know, the way that 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 was done. It was fun watching the dominoes sort of fall into place with, you know, again, things that you've seen set up earlier in the movie. Um, and then, you know, again, there's this whole like with Rear Window, it's not like an original commentary that this movie is providing, but um, there's there's all kinds of different layers of of commentary going on here about the process of about the very concept of being a voyeur right like um you know the movie at first is sort of indicting uh pippa and thomas for their actions or you know it wants us to have a conversation about which one of them is you know mm -hmm. in the right which one of them is in the wrong is thomas right that hey they need to back off of this or is Pippa right that, hey, now that they've seen that something not right is going on over here, do they have a moral obligation to continue um, watching um, or should they just mind their own business? Again, that's Thomas's side of the equation. Tale as old as time in these types of movies. Um, but then when you add in the extra layer of like, um, they are sort of, the fact that Julia and Seb are sort of, themselves indicting um pippa and thomas for being voyeurs right the whole thing is um based around the fact that she wouldn't mind her own business and the result of that is she ends up getting humiliated in this exhibition and her boyfriend dies um and so you know again we're we're forced to question even further right look well hey were they were they sort of in the right by doing this were um you know, even though it turned out that this whole thing was a setup, um, I guess I guess I guess the whole idea is just like, when is the process of watching someone? When does it go too far? When 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 uh, you know do the activities that you're watching become too intimate? When do you need to mind your own business? Is there a time when you need to mind your own business, or um, is our art is our entertainment not just? voyeurism like is it not just watching people putting on a performance um again big ideas doesn't maybe get into all of them as much as a more serious film would but this isn't a more serious film uh and i like that it adds in the extra layer like i said because because again it's it's classic to just explore the concept of voyeurism just in the idea that they're watching these people across the way. But when you add in the extra layer of, oh, these people are actually in on the whole thing and they're trying to make their own commentary about voyeurism, um, not to mention the imagery of the eyes, which again, there's some stylish filmmaking going on here with uh, the whole optometry stuff. It's not, it's not just like anonymous, um, you know, Z grade filmmaking. Um, I, I think, you know, he's trying to grade. I'm not sure what that means, but I assume bad. Yeah, well, again, I mentioned some of the erotic thrillers and stuff of the 90s. I mentioned the ones that are generally considered to be better. There are plenty out there, if you want to look into them, that are just made by, like, music video directors that have, like, 20% scores on um, 
Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know if you want to look up like a Wild Orchid or a Nine like and a this Half movie, Weeks then. or a. Yeah, it it does. Uh, it it does have. Um, it does I think have like low 40. ratings. I think it's like a forty yeah. percent. But again, I, I would chalk that up to some of critics not knowing what to do with it because we haven't seen a movie like this in a long time, and um, some critics just being stuffy. Like if you go read the New York Post review, like of this, it's ridiculous. No, it's no like, one reads the New York Post review of anything. Yeah, well, he calls it. The guy calls it smut. Which, like, again, these these are just like buttoned up people who. Um, who don't know how to have fun and don't know how to let loose with a movie like this. So I, I chalk it up to to that. What do you think of Richard Roper? Is he is he washed up? Yes, he is. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> absolutely. That's funny. Uh, yeah. Look, I I think the twists, like okay, as I mentioned at the start, I think one twist is interesting. I think. The fact that the sort of the, the premise of the whole thing, right? Like they're watching them. That is an interesting premise. I think the or an interesting twist. I think that the rest of them, like <laughs> killing Justice Smith, et cetera, et cetera. I don't even know why the film does it. Like it's not even look, twists don't have to always make sense. I'm not gonna sit here and say every twist that happens in a movie has to make sense. But I think that there has to be some some element that's almost maybe intangible of like fun implausibility of things. And I think that I just wasn't getting the fun out of the implausibility of some of these twists, right? Like just wild. I mean, they're sitting here talking about like how illegal it is or whatever that they're like planted a recording device in their studio. And they've like more or less done the same thing. Like they rented out their, their own apartment to someone to like essentially exploit them. And I'm just like, this doesn't even make, like, it's not even clever, I guess, and how it's being implausible, in my opinion. That's just me. Again, yeah. not everything has to be plausible. I, I don't, I'm not trying to sit here and say it's bad because it's implausible. That's not what I'm trying to say. It just, the particular implausibility of it just didn't, didn't do it for me. I think my review is just basically very similar to what my friend Zach Ford said about the woman in the window, which is yeah. he, he just played out a bunch of different uh dialogues where he's he is positioned against the hater and so like the hater says this moment and this moment was stupid me yeah i liked it hater everyone overacted as much as they could me yeah i liked it hater the story is as trashy as it comes me yeah i liked it i think that's that's me i think i'm just playing the yeah i liked it and all of this because I just had so much more fun than this, mm-hmm. than the woman in the window, which was just an absolute dumpster fire. We're still my my worst movie of this year for me. Um, uh, you didn't just, you didn't grace yourself with cherry, so you spared yourself. Truly bizarre. That, yeah, that I didn't. That is true. <laughs> that would probably would not have been a good experience. Yeah. Look uh, again. I think I know that that was a review of the woman in the window or whatever. I just I, I don't even I guess necessarily agree that it's like. Sure, the story's trashy, but like that's not what I'm complaining about. Um, I like a good trashy movie, but I also take your point of like the things that I'm saying. You liked them, that's cool. Like I said when we were chatting about this after I had watched it, I'm really glad that you enjoyed the movie. I'm not sitting here trying to yuck anyone's yum. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I wish I I wish I'd gotten the same enjoyment. Uh, I wish you had too out of the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. So I guess sort of to wrap up thoughts and we really can move on from this. The fact that we've talked for 45 minutes alone about this movie is probably uh, 
a real treat for our for our listeners. Um, but I, I guess I, I I will just wrap up and say that it's a wild movie. It is a wild movie. The Woman in the Window was also a wild movie. I think this this movie is better at being wild, at least marginally. Your mileage may vary on how much wilder you, it, it is and how good that wildness is. Scott is probably on the higher end. I think that I'm somewhere in the middle, maybe on the lower end. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's some some real stuff. I I do wish that I enjoyed it more, but there's some be. real stuff in this movie. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, there's some there's some real sex in this movie. I actually have no idea if the sex is real or not. Probably not. But um, <laughs> I don't think so. Hey, you don't know. You never I don't know. I think man. it goes that far. But yeah, yeah. Only one way to find out. We gotta get gotta get someone on the podcast. Gotta get Michael Moen on the podcast and ask him if if they had an intimacy sure. coordinator for for this movie or whatever it was that normal people had that everyone <laughs> raved about. <laughs> that is true. That's a good example of something that had like you know that push the envelope in terms of what it showed that's true all right scott favorite scene or moment uh (laughs) from the voyeurs okay we have to talk about the dialogue in the bar scene when she goes and meets up with him she follows him out to the bar after julia has died and i mean you're welcome to talk about it right now he just has a complete psychotic break in this restaurant and just starts asking her all of these like personal sexual questions. Yeah. Do you watch porn? And it, yeah. It goes to such place, such deep places that it ends up with Sydney Sweeney saying the line, uh, but a vibrator doesn't have a soul. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, and that's I was wisdom. just like, I was just sitting there like, just like applauding. Honestly, though, uh, I mean, I think she's incredible. wrong. I think a vibrator has more of a soul. I agree with uh, Ben Hardy's character that I think that a vibrator has more of a soul than some people that I've met. Is that what he says? I can't remember. I mean, but not he, word for word, but his his illusion is that, like, I don't know. I've I met mean, some, like, look, pretty soulless people. I think it's what he says or something like that. Look, there are soulless people out there. That's that's what that's what I will say. I will yeah. go that far. And and the person who reviewed this movie for the New York Post is one of them. <laughs> Uh, the white critic from send, the LA, send from tweet, the LA send Times. <laughs> oh man! All right, is that sorry? Is it was anything else you wanted to add for your favorite scene or moment, or is that that's the tweet? No, that just the dialogue and that whole scene is is incredible. Yeah, for me, um, you know, I I'm having a hard time scrounging one up, but I you know I did like the moment, right? I think, like I said, not all the twists in this movie are bad. I think that the sort of key twist that happens here with the big reveal that Julia is not dead, et cetera, et cetera. The exhibition is about Pippa and Thomas. I think that works pretty well. And and it's that kind of twist where when the scene starts, you can like really feel that something is very wrong with what's about to happen. And you have this like tickle, like, you know, this like itchy suspicion that it could be that, you know, is, is Julia really dead here? Um, And so I enjoyed that particular delivery with the twist, because I think that is, that is how a good twist, a good twist isn't always the one that just knocks you off your feet in terms of like complete shock that a twist just happened. It's that you can like feel it coming a little bit. And, um, you know, whether it's your suspicions are confirmed or, you know, you are sort of shocked by the twist that it does end up happening. It, there is an added element of a twist being good. If I think that if it's not a total surprise that if you feel like something was coming and there you go. So yeah, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the exhibition moment. Yeah, totally. It even just like the horror of like 
knowing what's about to happen after after Julia walks out right and you realize mm-hmm. she's alive and then right before they're about, about to, to reveal wrecked. the photos yeah. and yeah you realize what the photos are going to be it's like oh man you're just squirming and I liked it yeah that that was definitely the point where I was like nudging the guy next to me like hey you want to want to earbud for this it's about to get real <laughs> <laughs> okay all right Scott out of ten what are you giving the voyeurs look. You don't have not to justify it, Scott. You can just not can every just movie has to be high. Not every movie has to be high art. I think there is something to be said, and I have on record of saying this for a long time. There is something to be said for a movie that knows exactly what it is and hits the bullseye with what it is going for. And I think this is pretty close to that. So I'm giving it an 8.0. I had a great time with this movie. Very high score, Scott. I'm giving it a 4.5. I do think this movie knows what it is. I do not think that it's the bullseye, unfortunately. Um, I think that it's it's off by a fair bit by my measurement. But I'm glad that it hit the bullseye for you. Yeah. All right, Scott. That should do it for our review of The Voyeurs. You can check that out on Amazon Prime if you are interested and haven't seen it. Let's take a short break. When we return, we'll be following up last week's story about the Venice International Film Festival with more news coming out of there as well as the awards for the festival. And we'll also be discussing an exciting new trailer. We haven't had a trailer discussion in a while, Scott. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As mentioned before the break, we're going to go to the Venice Film Festival first. Scott, give us the update. What were the big movies in week two of the Venice Film Festival? And maybe even more importantly, who took home the awards? Yeah, well, I was mainly going to focus on uh, the awards. Time is such a fickle concept nowadays that um, I don't even know if I can remember exactly what the... uh, yeah, the week enough. two films were as opposed to the uh, week one films. Um, but everyone was really surprised, Scott, uh, by the Golden Lion winner. Um, you know, again, for context, the Golden Lion typically goes to a film that is going to be one of the Oscar front runners. Last year, it went to Nomad Land, which ended up winning Best Picture. The previous year, it went to Joker, which ended up getting the most nominations. Um, so a mainstream film that uh, people are well aware of if you follow movies. Um, that was not the case with this year's uh, Golden Lion winner, uh, which is a French film called L'Avonment, or in English, Happening. Um, not to be confused with M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening, of course, but um, just Happening. Um, and this is, uh, it seems, Scott, it's a French film, and it seems to be the latest in the uh, new subgenre of like abortion based dramas. Um, it's about a French woman's experience with getting an abortion. Um, from what I understand, you know, joining films that we've seen recently, like, uh, never rarely, sometimes always like, uh, unpregnant. Um, I think there's at least one other one I'm forgetting, but, uh, there was obvious child a few years back as well, but obviously this is a, a hot button issue in America right now. So it's interesting to see that, um, at this particular moment, at this particular time, when we are discussing it so much in America, that over across the pond, a, a movie with, uh, you know, this issue on its mind takes home 
one of the biggest prizes of the, the festival circuit. So um, one to keep our eye out for, I guess. I, I don't know much about the release of this film. I don't know if it has an American release um, scheduled yet, but I imagine that uh, some distributors will probably be uh, haggling over this one now after it's uh, it's big Golden Lion uh, victory. Um, Scott, elsewhere, the grand jury prize went to the hand of God. Which well, just is a quick, film. just a quick addendum here. I think one thing. <laughs> I, I apologize if you said this already, but it's actually also a period piece. It's it's set in 1963, which I think. Right, adds, yeah, I, I, I don't think I mentioned that, but yeah, which I think adds the element of even as more progressive as across the pond, I think, is in some of these topics than we are these days. I do think that even you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, almost, that is something that was still illegal in France. I believe part of it is that she, you know, is part of confronting whether or not she's going to get an abortion or not in this movie is, is of course the threat of, I think potentially going to jail for it. Criminal prosecution. So, correct. Yeah. Um, which again, kind of coming up again with what's going on in Texas here in the U S but um, anyway, we don't need to go down that road. Uh, the grand jury prize uh, went to the hand of God, which is uh, the new film by, Paolo Sorrentino, of course, uh, winner of, uh, I believe he won the Oscar for The Great Beauty, um, which was his film in um, the early 2010s. Um, he also directed Youth, uh, which was a film, I believe, with Michael Caine a few years back, Italian director. That one takes home the, the grand jury prize. Um, on a more notable note, Scott, some names that we more expected to see, perhaps. Um, best director goes to Jane Campion for uh, a film we've been talking about a lot here recently. And that is, you know, obviously moving up on the hype train for me, The Power of the Dog. Um, Campion, very decorated director. I want to say she also got some sort of special uh, prize Um Maybe that wasn't at Venice, but at one of the film festivals, I think she was awarded with some kind of special honorary award as well. Um, so, uh, it, you know, big, big festival season for her um, and, you know, segueing into potentially a big award season, um, which I think this is definitely one of the films which is gaining in traction and um, which if you had to pick the best picture nominees today at this moment, um, almost certainly makes the list, I would say. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so she's getting the <laughs> Lumiere Award at in, the, I guess, the Lyon Film Festival next month. I don't know if that's what you saw. I'm sure she's also gotten other awards as well. Yeah. Also, The Hand of God is uh, a Netflix movie, like uh, The Power, Power of the Dog, Dog. Yeah. and like another one movie that I'm sure we're about to bring up as well. Keep going. Yeah, indeed. Um, so Power of the Dog Great to see a female director winning um, and great to see that it's for a movie that, you know, I was already super hyped about. So um, cool moment for for Jane Campion. Uh, best actress, Scott, uh, went to Penelope Cruz for Parallel Mothers, which is the new film by Pedro Almodovar, of course, who Penelope Cruz has worked with um, ad nauseum many, many times. Um, and it seems like still doing great work. Um with with Mr. Elmodovar. I can't say, I don't think I've seen any of his movies ashamedly. I yeah, think that's a I, pretty big blind spot for me. I know you did see Pain and Glory, I think, Scott, but I did see Pain I and Glory a couple years back. Yeah, I missed that one even despite, you know, Antonio Banderas's Oscar campaign, but you know, there are there are few very few foreign filmmakers of the last 25 years who have, you know, 
garnered as much acclaim and reverence as Pedro Almodovar. Um, yeah, I think she's and, worked with know. him like literally like seven or eight times. Like, so live flesh all about my mother, revolver, broken embraces. I'm so excited. Julieta pain and glory and now parallel mothers. So that's eight. Yeah. And I think at least one of them, she got an Oscar nomination for Like, I think I want to say Volver, she might've gotten an Oscar nomination for it, but, um, anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one that I'm not, again, I'm not sure when it's supposed to come out, but, um, I'm sure it'll be making the rounds in the indie circuits here when it, when it does, because El Motivar is, you know, one of those names that people, people go, if you, if you follow film, if you follow independent film, if you follow foreign film, people will go see a film because it's directed by him, you know, regardless of what the subject matter is, regardless of who's in it. Um, you know, his name carries that much weight at this point in his career. Um, yeah. And I, I, I will say that this movie also, Look, it's very early in terms of critic reviews, but this is one of those movies that has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, like high 80s Metacritic score. Can it build this sort of buzz a la something like Parasite that had 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes for a really long time and debuted, I guess, earlier in the year, to be fair. It debuted much earlier in the year at a film festival. But Parallel Mothers is going to have, it is the closing night movie at the New York Film Festival. I'm sure it's going to be at other film festivals also. Um, it's the kind of movie, foreign film, that maybe could break through, right? Uh, I don't know if it has a hook necessarily quite like Parasites that got butts into seats, I think, once the word of mouth spread. But even as a traditional drama, I wonder if it can build buzz. I'm not sure that it can, but it would be cool if it did. Yeah, I mean... You know, again, it, it builds buzz because it has Pedro Almodovar's name attached to and it. And Penelope Cruz. Yes, and Penelope Cruz. But yeah, this this feels like a movie where, kind of like Pain and Glory, I guess Pain and Glory did get nominated for Best Foreign Film as well, but where it's okay. going to be more about the performance, um, perhaps. But, you know, a lot of that, too, is is will boil down to what Spain decides to submit for the Oscars, because that's really the ultimate factor. But um, I would imagine when Almodovar makes a movie, they normally submit it, but we'll see. Um, I mean, I can't think of any other movie that Spain would want to submit this year, but I don't watch Spanish film that much, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I can't say I'm super plugged into that world, but um, also in the non uh, recognizable uh, category, Best Actor Scott went to an <laughs> actor named John Arcilla for a fi- Filipino movie called on the job the missing uh it seems like it's kind of a political thriller um from what i looked into maybe john arcilla plays like a ruler of the philippines like maybe some sort of dictator uh again only looked at kind of the bare bones on this film but um interesting uh a lot of foreign films getting recognized here um that's normal so that's, for Venice, but yeah sure yeah it is um and obviously the hand of god technically isn't a foreign film for the Italians, but um, anyway, well, that, that's the crazy thing, right? I mean, Netflix is picking up so many of these <laughs> movies. Not Parallel Mothers, that's Sony Pictures, and All Motivar has had a long relationship. He always with Sony, works with them, yeah, with Sony Pictures International. Um, but I do think it, coming up on, we were talking about best foreign or best international feature, whatever they're calling it these days. I don't remember. Um, I think it's best international feature. International feature, yeah, yeah. Like this isn't related to Pedro Almodovar because I'm talking about France here, but like. What movie is France going to submit this year? They've got Titan, which is the Palm Door winner. They have Happening, which won the Golden Lion, and Petite Maman, which is Celine Sciamma's latest. And you you wonder, too, if, like, 
all of the outrage about them submitting Les Miserables instead of Portrait of a Lady on Fire will we'll make them will yeah. make them submit Petit Maman instead. Even though, and I'm seeing plenty of good things about uh, Petit Maman, but like it's 73 minutes long or something. It seems to be a much yeah. slighter film than um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire was. Not as emotionally substantial perhaps as as that film was to very different people, theme so. from what i uh, yeah very different theme from what i understand but also scott i mean look again i want to emphasize very low review count 93 on metacritic yeah that's probably the highest reviewed movie i've seen nothing but good things for it yeah yeah um and titan like honestly i can't that's see not for submit. everyone yeah i can't yeah. they're not going to submit that despite the fact that it, it won uh the grand prize it can um yeah, it's Julia DeCourneau. It's disturbing. It's off the wall from what I understand. Uh, it's a, you know, going to mess with your head. So I would be shocked if that's the one they go with. Um, yeah, I mean, but body horror is probably a, maybe even the <laughs> hardest genre of them all to submit as an international film. Like it's probably just not going to win, right? Mm -hmm. Let alone get nominated. I guess the other way around. Get nominated, let alone win. Yeah, let alone win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, but I think Petite Maman happening certainly are more of the flavor that you typically see in the in that international feature category which sure. some might say is you know with the exceptions of parasite and things like that like generic in terms of the type of movie that you always find in that category maybe it is but they're often quite good so sure no 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 statement on quality just variety sure. Last thing to note here, Scott, uh, is Maggie Gyllenhaal picking up the screenplay prize at Venice for the Netflix movie that you were alluding to earlier, The Lost Daughter. Again, another one that we've given plenty of airtime to on the show has a you know splashy cast with Dakota Johnson, Jesse Buckley, and um, Olivia Coleman. Olivia Coleman, right? Olivia Coleman is, I think, is generating a lot of buzz too from. What I was reading in the reviews, it seems like she's going to get yet another Oscar nomination, uh, which would make it that make it three years in a row. Right. Uh, I believe that is correct. No, she she skipped 2019. Yeah, I was uh, she, she yeah. didn't have a movie. In she had the favorite. Then she had uh, the father last year. And now um, now it sounds like she's a shoe in for the lost daughter to get a, a nomination at least. But she's the Christian um, Bale on the actress side. Maybe so. Um, but we're also going to. See Jesse Buckley apparently playing uh, a younger version of Olivia Coleman's character in the movie. Um, so true. I am fingers crossed that maybe the third time is the charm for Jesse Buckley, and maybe she'll finally pick up the nomination that she has deserved the past two years for I'm thinking of ending things and before that for Wild Rose. Um, though that would be in Judy category. Don't forget Judy. Oh, yes, of course. Um, but yeah, bit you know. Big hype train again for for the lost daughter. Was hearing a lot of good things about Maggie Gyllenhaal's direction of the movie um, when you know when it was the first reviews were coming in, and it seems like she's done a good job too. And it's an adapted screenplay, of course. This is based on an Elena Ferrante novel, um, which is a whole thing, Scott. I don't know if you know how much about Elena Ferrante, but um, that's a rabbit hole to go down. Uh, but uh, yeah, an adapted screenplay, her winning for that. So obviously she's made a strong impression, um, both directing and writing in her debut feature. And so I couldn't be more excited, honestly, to see this when it drops on Netflix around Christmas time. Yeah, we don't even know who uh, Elena Ferrante even is, right? That's the rabbit exactly. hole you're talking yep. about? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How do you compensate someone? I guess they have an agent or whatever. How do you compensate someone for uh, 
for adapting their work if you don't know who they very are. Very carefully. Yeah, very carefully. Um, yeah. Look, Lost Daughter has rocketed up my anticipated list for the year. You talked about Olivia Coleman, Jesse Buckley, Dakota Johnson. I mean, there's so many amazing actresses that are that are in the business right now. And they those three are three ones that really excite me. Uh, absolutely. Paul Mescal also has a minor role in this. Uh, speaking of normal people, which we talked about briefly earlier on. And Maggie Gyllenhaal, who's not always an actress who's inspired much out of me, but is it's always interesting to see a relatively famous actress or actor go behind the camera. You know, Bradley Cooper found a lot of success, in my opinion, of that just a few years ago. We see it more or less every year to varying degrees of success. I thought Bradley Cooper should have been nominated for Best Director that year. He wasn't. I hope Maggie Gyllenhaal, if the movie is as good as it seems like the buzz and the hype is building around it, say, hopefully she does break through um, as another female director who gets nominated in that category that often is uh, sees scarce women nominated. Um, but look, we'll see. She, Like you said, it was the screenplay award that she won, so <laughs> she wasn't getting nominated, or sorry, she wasn't getting recognized for her direction, but it but does Jane seem like Campion a kind of got recognized for direction. Exactly right. That's what I was about to say. It's like Jane Campion got that nod instead. And I do think that this is the type of of movie that will generate a lot of Oscar buzz. It does seem like the kind of premise, the kind of thematic exploration that that Oscar voters do sort of latch on to. And it's another movie that, you know, early days, but is extremely well reviewed on the critical side. 100% rating Rotten Tomatoes, 88 Metacritic, etc. Look, these are not things to live and die by. We disagree with critic scores like this all the time. But it's exciting I to see. I just disagreed in our movie today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, different kind of movie, but absolutely. Uh, but look, sure. these are the kind of movies that it's it's exciting to see that they are passing the first test. I think that's the right way to describe it. They're passing the first test. They're debuting. They're being well-received. And uh, look, will it be Netflix's year? I'm starting to become convinced it'll never be Netflix this year, but they have like three or four of the big players this year. I just want to know if that was a play on words when you said they're passing the first test, passing being another movie, which was a debut feature directed by an actress this year. So there you go. Which I believe has been picked up by Netflix. There has it really. I didn't, I don't think I knew that. Yeah. Well, there you go. I might be wrong. I'm going to yeah. double check on that now. <laughs> another one. I, I wonder if they would try to make an Oscar play for it, but I don't know. We just uh, haven't heard that much about it since it premiered at uh, Sundance. Unfortunately, <laughs> I mean, look, it has, it definitely has a release date. I just don't think the movie is good enough. Um, personally, I, I mean, I like Rebecca. I you mean, you like Rebecca Hall more than me. I'm not going to sit here and say that I like no, Rebecca Hall as much as you do. But well, I don't think her direction of the movie was like anything special, to be honest, but I did like the movie. I think people were generally positive on it at Sundance, but I could be wrong about that. No, I think that you're. I think that you are right. I was a little bit softer on it. I do think that reviews are generally pretty good. I just don't, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like it has a lot of buzz impetus behind yeah. it because maybe I, maybe Ruth Nega's performance. I thought she was really good in the movie. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't gone. You know, it, it is screening at the New York Film Festival. I will say that. So it is going to have. There you go. It is going to have some more exposure there. It's not in competition because I don't think you can be in competition at multiple film festivals. I think that has to be unique, and it was in competition at Sundance. But yeah, it, it is a Netflix film. November 10th is its debut on Netflix. So, Scott, uh, I think you wanted to oh, discuss right. the, the of big course. trailer of this week. Yeah, there is a big trailer this past <laughs> week. You know, you last week, I guess, when right before we recorded, you dropped the announcement that there was going to be a Matrix Resurrections trailer later in the week. And later in the week rolled around, I watched said Matrix Resurrections trailer and 
you know, there was a lot of buzz about how exciting this trailer was. It really feels like a true modernization of the vibe and the feel of the original Matrix movies You know, at the end of the 90s and the early 2000s. And I wholeheartedly agree that th- like it's the kind of thing like if you saw Matrix, the Matrix one time 15, 20 years ago and you never saw like screenshots or screen grabs from it again. This is this is the way that you would remember the Matrix, right? And that is awesome. The fact that they can that they can make something and modernize the vibe of something. Uh, they being, of course, just Lana Wachowski in this case, I believe. Right? It's just Lana. I believe that's correct. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think that's super exciting that they are able to sort of nail that vision. It's kind of what you'd expect from anything that a Wachowski would do, either you know by herself or together, uh, the two of them. My one hesitation, Scott, and this is my only hesitation, and I want you to walk me back (laughs) off this cliff if you can here, is that I'm worried that they are leaning too much into the imagery of the original Matrix film, too much into the plot beats of the original Matrix film, and too much into the characters, frankly, of the original Matrix film. Like, I thought... I, look, I have not seen the Matrix sequels except for the one time that I watched them, like back in like the you know the knots, like when I was like still growing up and young. So I don't remember exactly everything that happens. But I thought Trinity died in those movies. <laughs> I didn't think that she survived, but apparently she's very much alive because Carrie Ann Moss is in this film. Um, but like I don't remember. I'm sure she didn't die in those movies, and I'm just wrong. But look, she's back. Keanu Reeves is back with his full John Wick look, which I think is a really strange decision. Personally, I think it's really strange that they have that he has the same look as he does at John Wick in this movie. I think it's an interesting choice. Um, I I think they want that though, right? Because people have a positive association with that look now. When they see Keanu, Keanu, they're like, (laughs) yeah. I mean, look, The Matrix is is an iconic film to be sure, but like, it's. 20 over 20 years old now right what are people yeah. thinking about nowadays when they see keanu reeves john wick and so uh, again i don't know if that was their thought process but it does make sense on that level i thought people were thinking always be my maybe cameos but sure look we'll go with john wick um look but look okay so there's tons of, you can go look this up on twitter on the internet whatever like there's tons of like side-by-side screen grabs of images from the trailer that are very similar to imagery from the first movie and there are plot points that seem very similar to the first movie. Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, like they're literally like prosthetic makeuping him to look like Morpheus from the original movie. Um, and I just think that is a really interesting decision. And it has me a little bit reticent to get too excited about this and makes me wonder if creativity in the story is going to be lacking a little bit. Obviously. Well, I say this, but I thought that Carrie Ann Moss was had died as Trinity in the movie too. Like, you know, Agent Smith, played by Hugo Weaving, does not appear like he's going to be in this movie. I think Jonathan Groff and someone else is are the agents, I believe, in this in this one. Um, but Scott, tell me that I'm not. I'm my concern is is unwarranted that the you know Lana Wachowski is is smart enough and creative enough to avoid this Disney live actioning of the Matrix. Um, cause that's my only concern. Cause visually this, this, this trailer looks amazing. Like, like, let's just get that like stunning trailer visually, super exciting to see it modernized in the way that it has been. But 
there's that itch in the back of my head that, that has me a little worried. I mean, look, there's a few things to say, I think. First of all, I think you you need to be confident. You can be confident in Lana Wachowski. Like, sure, I know it's not the pair of them, like, on their previous films. But you look at the Wachowski's filmography, they're not really known for uh, for making films that aren't ambitious, right? Like, um, sure, not all of them have they've been able to pull off. But, like, particularly, you know, their last couple of movies, Cloud Atlas and Jupiter Ascending, are very ambitious films um, that that take big swings and certainly don't just settle for being safe sci-fi epics for what I understand. Um, and so I think you can, you can take that to heart that I would be shocked if they decided to bring the matrix back after again, almost 20 years since the last movie. Um, and just, just to rehash old, old plot points and old, you know, stuff, old shots from the, the old movies. Um, you know, the other thing I would say is it's a trailer, right? Like we just saw the Spider-Man Far From Home trailer or whatever it's called, uh, No Way Home trailer for the third movie. They revealed in the trailer, right? Alfred Molina, this big nostalgia thing is coming back. Trailers are supposed to get people excited for the movie. And people who are Matrix fans, um, you know, like being reminded of what they love about the Matrix. And so I think some of that is just natural hey, we're going to throw some stuff in uh, that people are familiar with in the trailer to sort of hit those nostalgia buttons in the people in this these two and a half minutes. Um, and look, Scott, I'm not as big of a Matrix fan as you are. I do quite like the first movie. I mean, it's a, it's a very good sci-fi action movie. I've never seen the sequels. I do want to uh, fit them in before, um, sure. before this comes out uh, because they have... They have gotten more praise in recent years. Um, they have, you know, picked up a little bit of a cult following in recent years, um, despite, yeah, definitely being initially reviled. But uh, <clears throat> look, I but, think yeah. when I know that you say you say it's very good. I think the Matrix, the original Matrix at a time is like probably one of the greatest sci-fi action movies, if not at the time, the greatest sci-fi action movie ever made. Mm -hmm. And look, it's hard to create a trilogy and follow up one of the greatest films of all time with things that are going to live up to that level of quality. I think you should know what you're getting yourself into. They are much more lore heavy. The story makes yeah. very, very little sense. And that's cool, I guess, that that the narrative on that is shifting more recently. I'd have to revisit to have a firm judgment on that. I thought the sequels were cool. They are not the Matrix. <laughs> like, they are not the quality of the original film. And I think if you go in expecting it to be, you're going to get burned. I think the hope for this, at least from my perspective... Um, after seeing the trailer is, and I can't believe I'm saying this given the last movie he directed, but a JJ <laughs> Abrams style approach, right? Where he did it with Star Trek first, and then he later did it with Star Wars and the Force Awakens. Um, that blends nostalgia and new stuff so seamlessly, right? Where it's, it's giving you, it's pushing those nostalgia receptors again in a satisfying way, in the way that you would want. But it's also showing a clear intent to move beyond that. I don't know, you know, how that's going to play out in the Matrix, because obviously in Star Wars and Star Trek, it's like we had a whole new cast playing these characters. I mean, I, and, you know, you mentioned there are some supporting character. I mean, and, and you know, Yaya Abdul-Mateen, I guess, is a new Morpheus. You know, they, they, they haven't 
at least they're, to our knowledge, Lawrence Fishburne is not going to be in the movie. But um, look, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page right now, and it says specifically <laughs> that Yahya Abdul Mateen II is playing Morpheus and has replaced Lawrence Fishburne, who played the yeah. character in previous films. I look, I will say Wikipedia two months before the movie comes out is not the be all end all of whether that is actually the case three months before the movie comes out. But uh, if that is the case, if they've cast him to replace Lawrence Fishburne, wild move, I think, to replace him. That is that is an interesting yeah, bit of casting. I don't know. I would, I'd be surprised if there wasn't at least a cameo. But I guess, you know, what I'm saying is, will the Wachowskis, if, the, if they want to keep going with this, or if Lana wants to keep going with it, with this, will they have the the balls to kill off, you know, a Trinity or even a Neo in this movie? Um Neo, Allah, no way, no Allah. way. Yeah, I know. All uh, Han Solo getting uh, like tr- Trinity, but, maybe, again, maybe. You have the most. Again, if you compare it to Star Wars, you have the most, arguably the most beloved character in Star Wars of Han Solo. You know, they killed him off, and now part of that was because Harrison Ford asked to be killed off. But yeah, I think um, he said that he was either going to commit suicide or they killed him off in the movie. So it was one or the other. Yeah. Imagine, imagine that. Imagine Han Solo ending by taking the coward's way out. Wow, that would have been something. Um, I meant Harrison but yeah, Ford, but yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> that would. You're be right. They, they won't. They probably won't kill off Neo. But I guess my question is, are they willing to take a big swing like that about amidst all of the nostalgia, in order to show that hey, we're moving on again? Assuming that they want to jumpstart a new. Matrix franchise, which I can't imagine they don't, right? Like, that's oh. just movies nowadays. Lana Wachowski might not be interested, but I'm sure Warner Brothers would love to. Yeah. So yeah. That, those are my thoughts. That's that's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping it'll be a fun movie. Again, I don't have a lot of attachment to The Matrix, so I'm probably going to enjoy it more than most people. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of like I feel about Star Trek 09. Again, going back going back just to Star Trek 09, like if you ask the real hardcore Trekkies or whatever, they'll say it's too slick and it's not, you know, consistent with what Star Trek is. I don't care. Cause I don't really like Star Trek all that much. I just like the, it's a good movie. And you know, the matrix, obviously I like more than Star Trek in general, but it's not one of my favorite movies and I'm not like married to the lore or whatever of the original movie and follow movies. So. No, so they can do what they want with it is what I'm saying. I just want to see a good movie. Look, yeah, I would love to see a good movie because I do think that I'll have to revisit to firm this opinion up. I don't think the sequels are if they, maybe they are just barely good movies, but I think that uh, they do fall short on a number of metrics. But, you know, maybe the conversation is shifting around those and maybe Matrix Resurrections will turn the tide back in the favor of the original movie. I think we can certainly we can certainly hope that now whether that comes true is is another question, but. That's, I think, all we got for today, Scott. This was quite a meaty uh, episode. Granted, 15 minutes of the runtime that I'm seeing on our screen right now is from <laughs> is from our chit-chat at the beginning. So I guess that makes me feel slightly better. But either way, that should do it for episode 158 of Some Like It, Scott. Any last thoughts you want to you wanna chime in here with? I know sometimes we've left room for a full chat of other things we've been watching, but anything quick? Yeah, I guess quick hit just on the topic of what I've been watching. Um, for trivia purposes, I've been watching all of the films of Tom McCarthy that he has written, um, which is kind of a mixed bag. Most of them very good, but um, also I watched Christopher Robin today, which is just kind of bland. Uh, And also he wrote Million Dollar Arm, 
which is just a true anomaly of a movie directed by Craig Gillespie and written by uh, Tom McCarthy. And this is a freaking Disney sports movie, right? About John Hamm going to India to try and find a uh, the next great pitcher. Uh, and I've now seen the movie twice, which just like <laughs> th- think about all the movies that I could have watched when I was watching Million Dollar Arm two times. But um, what did you watch? It's, up? it's a fine movie. It's a fine movie. I did not because I specifically requested screenplay by Tom McCarthy and he only has a story credit on up. So, but I'm saving the worst for last, which is of course the cobbler, um, which I was looking at the other day. Not Timmy failure. David Ehrlich said, Timmy failure is not eligible. Uh, David Ehrlich said about the cobbler that it was the worst movie Adam Sandler has ever made, which. Oh, that doesn't bode well. Oh boy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh yes, it's one of the the glowing ten percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's one of those all time great like weird years for a director, right? Where uh, he makes the film that wins Best Picture, Spotlight, and he also makes what I mean. I don't know if it got any Razzie attention or whatever, it did. but like certainly, it did. yeah, was in the in the realm of possibility for the Cobbler to get recognized. I, I think. I think he really should have gone the full Alan Smithy route on that one. Um, well, weirdly enough, though, I will say the cob just to slightly poke a hole in this. The Cobbler was a 2014 movie. It debuted at TIFF, and then I guess distri- did distribute in 2015. TIFF, yeah. Again, because at this point in his career, Tom McCarthy was known for doing like sensitive indie dramas, right? Like his other films were Win Win, uh, The Station Agent, The Visitor, and Win Win, right? Which are all these really quiet, like human humanist like dramas, just about real people yeah and, and then, then he makes humanist this freaking, drama <laughs> the cobbler which is like fantastical adam sandler comedy like i i don't know i'm kind of morbidly curious about the movie but i'm sure that i'm not, gonna not just it. adam sandler but of course method man and then dustin hoffman to round method out man the, but not red man also wow that's an yeah, interesting choice i know tough one uh hoffman method man and bushimi man uh, <laughs> it's an Adam Sandler movie, of course. Buscemi's in it, yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. Well, Scott, wow, what a what a film you have on your hands. Oh uh, wow, I can't. Anyway, uh, have that to look forward to. Yes, yes, indeed. All right, Scott, that's it. Where can people find you on Twitter? At Scarby Dent, and you can find me at Shelton two zero one three on Twitter and on Letterbox, where you can find Scott at at Scarby Dent as well. Please follow our podcast. Um, find it at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods where you can check out the different reward tiers and support us. If you choose not to support us or if you can't, that's okay. You can still find us on all your podcast services, uh, Apple podcast, Spotify, etc. Rate, review, subscribe, share if you can. And we'd really appreciate that. And that will do it for today's episode. We'll be back next week with an in-person episode. It sounds like maybe hopefully if we, oh, can, yeah. if we can carve out the time where we'll be talking about the Clint Eastwood, uh, I guess, magnum opus. Is he calling it his magnum opus? Probably not. But that'd be something if he has a magnum opus, like his 46th film or something that he's directed. But, yeah. I mean, one of them's got to be the magnum opus, I guess. Uh, but that film is Cry Macho. You can find it in theaters this coming weekend. It is directed and stars Clint Eastwood, as you'd expect. I mean, look, he's not in every movie that he directs, but it does seem like uh, he's in most of them at this point his but until then is space cowboys i'll just uh, leave you on that <laughs> there you go scott well we want to rev- review that instead of cry macho tempting but no all right well cry macho it is then but until then for scott harvey i'm scott shelton we'll see you next time
God, I was in Miami, and I mean, I know. So I'm, I know I'm spoiled. Like I don't really pay many, if any, convenience fees on tickets because they all get waived at AMC. And I pay like a nominal one or whatever when I go to Alamo. It's like a buck fifty. It's like super. It's not really that expensive. But man, fucking Miami, man. These places, seven dollar convenience fee, unfucking believable. Seven dollars. Seven dollars per ticket. That's pretty ludicrous. And so I just walked. The, I just like walked a mile and a half or whatever to the theater, and I'm, I'm not fucking paying a set like a fourteen dollars in convenience fees for two tickets to Shang Chi. It's fucking yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. No. I mean that that is like that is highway robbery. Seven dollar convenience fee. What the fuck? 